All right, I'm Rabbi Tama Davis Hart at Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue, bringing the weekly Panisha commentary. And any questions or comments are welcome to be addressed by clicking on Ask the Rabbi link on our website at rabdavis.org. And I also want to say there is a lot in this teaching today. Some of it will not be covered in this uh, particular teaching. If you want all of the details on the research that I've done for this parasha, go to the website, download the parasha, and you can read all of the references and things from which I got my information besides God's Torah. All right. So in the very first sentence, uh, we're really concentrating on the first part of this parasha because there's so much controversy on what a fire is, lighting a fire. So in the very first sentence, we see a repetition of the command to rest on Shabbat. So many people are so complacent about Shabbat. Well, I'm just going to do this. Well, I'm just going to do that. And God said this has to be a rest. It's a holy day in honor of him. So if we honor our king and we love our king, we need to rest. Not think about what we got to do tomorrow. Not think about what we did yesterday, but resting. Resting our mind, resting our heart, and concentrating on worshiping our God. And it says, quote, These are the things which Adonai has ordered you to do. On six days work is to be done. But on the seventh day is to be a holy day for you, a Shabbat of complete rest in honor of Adonai. It is not about us. This is part of the marriage contract, this, uh, this whole thing. So we need to honor it. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death, unquote. And this passage reiterates Exodus 31, 12 through 17, in the last parasha, where a complete paragraph is devoted to this command and why it was established. He didn't have to tell us why for anything. The fact that he tells us to do or not do something should be enough for us. Note that the theme of Shabbat running throughout the Bible describing God's purpose for man. Quote, for this is a sign between me and you through all your generations, so that you will know that I am Adonai who sets you apart from me. That's the whole point. <coughs> as a marriage contract between God and us, we are to honor him in all we do, as we should behave with our earthly wives and husbands. The woman of valor is described in Proverbs 31. Psalm 112 describes the male counterpart to a perfect marriage. We need to examine these scriptures and apply them on a spiritual level as we focus our lives on God. And God doesn't mince his words. His words, when he tells us that anyone who violates Shabbat, that's the marriage contract, will be put to death. We just sat here for half an hour or more going over this explicit details of how to build the tabernacle. He is a God of detail. Mediocre will not do. And there's a reason all of those materials were used and the number of the materials and how they were placed. This is a lifelong study in itself. In other words, it is what it is with God. It is to be observed through all our generations as a perpetual covenant. Where else does God make these statements? Leviticus 23 begins with the statement that the following ties are designated as holy, the following times. Interesting that the first one listed is Shabbat. With all of the designated times of God, Shabbat is listed first. That ought to tell us something. We're commanded not to do any kind of work, even in our homes. The permanent regulation of celebrating Pesach is commanded in Leviticus 23.14. And at the end of the sentence, it states, 
no matter where you live. Now, personally, I choose to apply Shmitha to here, where we let the land rest. We're not planting anything in the ground until September 26th, when we celebrate Rosh Hashanah. All right, so apply it as you will, but I take this, no matter where you live, we are to follow his designated times and do what he says no matter where we live. So the excuse that we're traveling, whether on business or pleasure, does not hold water. It's to be celebrated, period. Shavuot observance is commanded in Leviticus 23.21, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur in Leviticus 23, and Sukkot in Leviticus 23 as well. They're all listed in the book of Leviticus. So we might conclude that God takes the marriage contract of Shabbat extremely seriously, and so must we. So let's explore. This is the crux of the teaching today. That reads out of Exodus 35.3, you are not to kindle a fire in any of your homes on Shabbat. I've taught on this before. Many of you are familiar somewhat with it, but I hope to add to that information for you today. So one of the introduce, uh, I want to introduce one of the major flaws of Orthodox Judaism, equal to the misconception of, by Christians that Yeshua's sacrifice releases people from all and any accountability for the past, present, and future sins, and that anyone who professes his name has secured his or her salvation. Now, on the Jewish side, they claim the merit of the fathers. That does not work. That does not work. God uses his name, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to show this perpetuality, not that they are saving us. We are going to be held accountable. That's a sad reality for us. If you think about it, scary. And we depend on God's grace and mercy. And out of that grace and mercy is showing us what we're doing wrong now so we can fix it and not claim his grace and mercy like many Christians do at the end of their lives. Oh, through God's grace, I'll be saved. Don't worry about it. Oh, no, we better worry about it. We need to do something about it. The sages say the prohibition against starting physical fires because they perceive this command to prohibit as indicative of the Jewish principle that the Torah can be understood only as it is interpreted by the oral law, which God taught the Moshe and which he transmitted to the nation. He did not give the entire oral Torah to, God, to, to Moshe. How can I say that with authority? Well, because everything that the oral Torah encompasses wasn't happening at that time. It evolved, and it's evolving. And it evolves through the wisdom of the rabbis. So let's look at this. The Orthodox Jewish community is taught that the oral Torah, the traditions of men that Shaul, Paul, speaks against, and that Yeshua speaks about is the oral Torah, all right? The, the traditions of men, not God. We know the dangers of placing anything above God's Torah. Indeed, Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed sects, S-E-C-T-S, do not accept Yeshua as Messiah or part of the Echad of God, even though the first sentence in Genesis identifies him as always being. He is the Ein Soth. The infinite light. Well, in, you know, if you're looking at it from a Jewish perspective, it's he's the infinite light. Infinite means always was, is, and will be. So where's the connection? All right? They don't make it. Furthermore, God speaks of Yeshua throughout the Old Testament as he was seen as a column of cloud that worked in tandem 
with a column of fire to lead the children of Israel through the desert. And this can be compared to the grace and law of God's Torah. The cloud is more of a grace-type concept, and fire is more of the judgment-type concept. The written described in the Tanakh and the living Torah, Yeshua HaMashiach, in the Brit Kadeshah, as the revealed Messiah who taught the spirit of the law. He didn't do away with anything. He made it harder. 613 commands in the old, 1,059 in the new. Who's under the law? If anybody. We are not under, this is not a dispensation of grace, by the way. We are still accountable to God's laws. So don't think for a minute, when Yeshua came, he lessened our accountability. He did not abrogate his own laws that are erroneously taught by many Christians as the law was nailed to the cross. This is not even a logical thought process. If we claim to love Yeshua as our Messiah, that mandates following him and emulating him by default. Furthermore, it means we do not eat the foods forbidden in his instructions, including shellfish and pork, among others. We do not follow the pagan ways and traditions of which Easter and Christmas are included. We don't adulterate or desecrate Shabbat by keeping it on Sunday that the Catholic Church deemed was their authority to change. And we follow the designated times of God plus Shabbat, which is a designated time. Furthermore, it's impossible that the entire Torah was given to Moshe, as I mentioned. All the things that the oral Torah encompasses did not happen at that time. All right. God does not make his instructions impossible to understand. And it says, quote, for anyone who keeps on asking, receives. Anyone who keeps seeking, finds. And to him who keeps on knocking, it will be opened. That's in Matthew and Luke, by the way. Who created and drives the human conscience for those who do not have God's Torah? God, God informs us he makes himself manifest to everybody, no matter where or who they are. So now let's go to this lighting of fire. So generally, you know, this in, in this in this parasha, this is a particular prohibition that is singled out and not anywhere else. And it looks like it's just thrown in there. But it's not. The Torah, God's Torah, does not spell out specific activities that are prohibited on Shabbat. The scriptural treatment of Shabbat is largely generic and the rabbis go crazy with it. 39 things you cannot do, and they are all of a creative nature, and they're all in some way created to the, to the building of the tabernacle. So they're saying, you know, if it has anything to do with that, you can't, you can't do it, right? You can drive a nail in a piece of wood, but you can't finish that final blow because then you've created something. You're not creating something. You know, you, it makes no sense. The particulars of the laws of Shabbat, 39 categories of creative activity that are proscribed on the weekly day of rest are transmitted through the oral tradition. Rabbinic tradition teaches us that the underpinnings for all of the laws regarding creative activity on Shabbat are learned from the context created by Parashat Vayachel because the particulars of the laws of Shabbat are transmitted in the context of building the Mishkan they draw this line between the work of various artisans that would create and furnish the Mishkan and the activities from which we refrain in observance of Shabbat. If you love to sew and your time to sew, that's, that's a time you, you love 
to be a Shabbat. You know, you want to sew. Maybe that's the only time you can sew. And it's not work for you. Is it a sin because they sewed when they made the Mishkan? No. That is not a sin to create that. This is rabbinic tradition. Like gardening. You love to plant your little tomatoes and it's so fun for you and you're close to God and you thank him for the renewal of life every year. Is that a sin doing that? According to rabbinical Judaism, it is because you can't create. You can't plant. So what do you do? You know, it, it makes no sense. The parallel, and, and then, you know, the, the problem is, is they don't have the spirit of the law. When they don't have Yeshua and they don't have the spirit of the law, they can't get it. They can't get the rest of the story. So the parallel that this juxtaposition creates goes beyond the basic categories of creative endeavor. And it implies a parallel between God's creation of the world and man's ability to give testimony to that creation, as well as to produce a microcosm of that creation through the building of the Mishkan. So the opening verses of this parashat are true to this general method. They present the concept of the six-day work week and the seriousness of the prohibition against creative labor work on Shabbat. And the statement that is so what we call tacked on to this familiar formula, it seems uncharacteristically detailed, singling out the prohibition against the active use of fire on the Sabbath. Now, this specific prohibition is best understood in terms of the broader underpinning of Shabbat as a microcosm or imitation of God's creation of the universe. Now, Bereshit, Genesis, recounts the origins of creation, first in the general statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then with a specific act of creation, let there be light. And in much the same way, we are commanded in a general sense to observe Shabbat, and then immediately commanded to desist from using the creative force of fire in a very real sense, our use of fire, our ability to harness energy, is the primary manifestation that man is created in the image of God. So in echoing this dramatic call, let there be light, we may even delude ourselves into believing that we too are gods because we can create light. See how this can get lost? The fact that we don't make creative use of this power on Shabbat allows us to regain our perspective, to readjust our sights, and reconnect to the Creator and look at this. What does this really mean? So this creative activity from which we refrain on Shabbat, they do more than readjust our playing field in our relationship to God. The laws of Shabbat serve as great uh, democratizers, allowing us to readjust our social perspective as well. And one prohibition in particular, the prohibition to carry or transfer material from one location to another illustrates this aspect of traditional law. You cannot carry a book, your keys, or anything else from one destination to another. But you could take the key and pin it on your shirt, then it's not carrying. See how that works? You cannot light a fire, which includes turning on your car engine or pushing an elevator button because it makes a spark on Shabbat 
So how do they get around it? They hire what they call a Shabbish Goy, somebody who doesn't observe Shabbat to push the button on the elevator and to start your car for you. All of these convoluted ways around the laws of God. And they make them. They, they make these prohibitions themselves, and then they got to find a way around them. It's insane. It's crazy. All right? So in a sense, these two activities, harnessing the power of fire and transporting objects from place to place, seem like opposites. So the former stands at the forefront of human achievement, transforming both the object into which it is applied and our lives in general, creating a fire, you have to cut down wood, right? And then you have to strike the match, uh-oh, you know, and you make the fire, uh-oh, okay? Moving an object <clears throat> does not change the object in any way, and it hardly seems creative, yet is considered work, and in some traditional circles, it is a weekly creative activity, to carry something, right? You can tell if you go to three or four synagogues and they're all lined up side by side, you could tell who's messianic, you could tell who is conservative and who is re who is orthodox. Reform, they look just like the church, <laughs> except their name might be Jewish, biologically. Some not even that, right? So the orthodox rabbis say the oral Torah makes it clear that only the creation of a fire and such use of it as cooking and baking are, forget, are forbidden because baking and cooking are mundane tasks that we are to refrain from. All right. So this is man's interpretation. Keep this in mind. The literal verse does not mention this. It says, kindle a fire in any of your dwellings or your homes. All right. The rabbis go on to say there is no prohibition against enjoying its light or its heat. They say deviant sects that denied the teachings of the sages misinterpreted this passage to refer to all uses of fire so they would sit in the dark throughout Shabbat, just as they sat in spiritual darkness all their lives. So this refers in particular to the Karaites who made a different set of rules. And they maintained that a fire started before Shabbat can burn throughout Shabbat without disobeying this law. So one may logically conclude that using a fire to cook and bake may be prohibited simply because cooking and baking are work that can be done before Shabbat and not because you got a fire. Indeed, we see Shabbat lamps sold in some of the Jewish magazines, you'll see them, that make it possible to have a light without flipping on a switch. You just turn a little uh, shade. You'll see them. If you see uh, everythingjewish.com, they have this little light, and it's got a famous rabbi's picture on the front of it, kind of like our milk cartons, you know. And, and you can turn this without, without prohibiting, you know, doing something against Shabbat. So the prohibition against flipping switches is not addressed in either of the oral laws mentioned in the Kumash because there were no switches. This is my point about oral tradition, oral law, okay? Just as we were given free will, we're expected to use our brains to apply God's Torah to life and to pray for answers to our questions at the right time. How do we get the answers to those questions? We study Torah and we pray and the Ruach will reveal it to us. We do not have a Urim and a Tumim to, to punch in a, you know, a, a cell phone number and get a bunch of lights. We don't have that anymore. God doesn't use that now. The Ruach is with us. The Ruach guides us as we seek to understand the concepts in God's Torah. 
Right. And although the Ruach had not been given in the Old Testament, God answered his question, the questions the people had through the Urim and the Tumim, like I just said. Right. Another example of God providing everything we need to know or do for his purpose is found in Exodus 35, 35. And it says, quote, he has filled them with the skill needed for every kind of work, whether done by an artisan, a designer, an embroiderer using blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, or a weaver. They have the skill for every kind of work and design. God prepares us for the mission he has assigned us to. So we never need to worry about, oh, how am I going to do that? You know, God may be leading me to this, but how am I going to do it? He will prepare you at the right time. Just as when you study Torah, you don't understand everything in Torah. I don't understand everything in Torah. But you have a certain body of knowledge in your mind. God will recall what you need to say at the time you need to say it. And he will add his words to whatever needs to be said. So you need not worry. So back to the fire. If we look at the Hebrew translation of this phrase, it says, when you trans translate it, not you light fire in any of you dwellings on day of the Sabbath. So if, as the rabbis say, we can enjoy a fire for heat and light, would this mean that we can light a fire for either in our homes? God's Torah does not allow for this provision. So it's got to mean something else. This is the sense of inquiry that we should all be developing. All right. If this is this, and it doesn't make sense here, but it's in the Torah, it's got to be right. If we translate it right. Or transliterate it correctly. So this is where the question comes in. So you have these Hebrew words, am, A-M, and ish, I-S-H. So this whole, I give, I give you a whole uh, several pages of talking about how ish or ish can be uh, mean man or fire. And in the context of man, it doesn't uh, translate as a man alone. No man is an island. We're a nation of God's people. And that shows us that it's not all about you or you or you or me. It's about the collective welfare of Israel, God's people. And that's how um, it, the, the ish is used. And I've given, given you several uh, references in here to this, okay? So we are a nation set apart. It is not about individuality. Uh, according to Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew Lexicon, they have ish, I put ish down here, and it can mean all these different things, fire, flames, um, uh, fire for cooking, roasting, parching, altar fire, God's anger, which brings us to the point I want to make, all right? The English word for kindle originated from an old Nordic word, which meant to set on fire, meaning um, anger, all right? So we have, you are not to kindle a fire in any of your homes or your dwellings on Shabbat. So does it really mean fire, all right? Well, I have these, these, all these words that you can look at after, after the service today. And I have a quote, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee. All right. So kindle can be used for people becoming angry. So in the examples I provide in the written part of this parasha, Jacob's frustration or anger when his wife remained childless and the jealousy or the anger of Potiphar 
when his adulterous wife falsely accused Joseph of molesting her to cover up her trying to molest him. All right. So kindling of anger was not limited to humans. This also applies to God, kindling anger. Jealous anger. So kindling was also used to refer to fire. So look over these pages that I have showing you this different interpretation and how it applies. All right. So there was one commentator. He was an exegete. His name was Moshe um, Al-Shek. And he had a real interest in halakha, the Jewish law, right? His commentary on Exodus 35.3 questions why God is telling Moshe about the Sabbath laws at this point in the story rather than including them within the instructions given prior for building the tabernacle. He addresses this ambiguity of the phrase within your settlements, explaining that the injunction against kindling refers to residence, not my God's residence. The temple. What about that fire? Yeah, there's a difference between fire in your dwellings and fire in his dwelling. All right? That fire was commanded to be perpetually kept. All right? So the tabernacle fire was used on Shabbat for the purpose of burning sacrifices. So what are we to make of this verse? There is no doubt that it's tied to Exodus 35.2 that commands rest from the mundane world of work on six days of the week, including arguing among ourselves in our own residences and in the gates of our cities. So we're not to do mundane, which includes cooking. We're not to get mad at each other. Did anybody's grandma or mother ever say, don't ever go to bed mad? Where do you think they saw came from? Somebody along the line taught them that. Because you might not wake up to say, I'm sorry. All right? So the point that fire is not to be kindled in one's house provides an exception to fire that was to be kept burning in the temple, commanded by God. Now, kindling may not have been traditionally thought to have been creative, as the other types of work prohibited, because wood burned is destroyed. But you're creating a fire. So it takes work to kindle a fire, whether a physical fire or an argument, boat, both of them are prohibited by God. So it fits very nicely. You can safely say with confidence and somebody asks you about that, what this means, I hope. So the aforementioned description of the many meanings of kindle and ish indicates this close connection in any context between the prohibition of kindling fire, whether considered as provoking the fire judgment of God, and ceasing all work for one day to reflect and worship the one who so carefully explicates his instructions. So in reality, our worship and reflection on our God should be his perpetual burning fire, just as that in the temple. All right? So refrain from the mundane. Yes, you can start your car to come here. Right? Yes, we can carry the keys that opens the door. Right, Joe? Yes, we can turn on the air conditioning. All right? And you also have to keep in mind the concept from the lesser to the greater, Valke Comer. Is it more of a mitzvah for you to stay home and say, I can't turn on my car and go to Shabbat? Or to go to Shabbat and light, start your car, light your car on fire and start your car. So you have to look at that too. Do you know when you convert to traditional Judaism or even conservative Judaism, um, you have to have two Shabbat Shomas 
Shomer Shabbos individuals to sign off in your conversion. What's a Shomer Shabbos? Somebody who doesn't drive to Shabbat. Right? It's hard to find these days. Okay. All right, our Haftarams out of 1 Kings. This passage reflects back to the reality that God provides for those who love him, what they need, when they need it, to accomplish his purpose. In this case, it's Hiram from the tribe of Naphtali, who was a bronze worker filled with wisdom, understanding, and skill for all kinds of bronze craftsmanship. He came to King Solomon and did all of his bronze work. So the challenge for those who submit to the laws and decisions by the rabbis or other religious leaders is to compare what is given as halakha or law to God's Torah. That's what the scripture, when two or three are gathered in my name, that's what it's talking about, making halakha, making Jewish law. And that will vary from rabbi to rabbi. All right. So it's wise to pray for wisdom and understanding on your own behalf. Clergy do not have a monopoly on wisdom and Torah knowledge, as the Torah makes very clear. And then our Brit Kadashahs out of Revelation 11. And the focus on this is the two witnesses of whose identity there exists much debate. I don't care what people tell you. We don't know who those two witnesses are going to be. All right. It seems logical, seems logical that they will represent grace and law as they're described as the two olive trees and the two menorahs standing before the Lord of the earth. Are these Elijah and Enoch? These are the two individuals identified in the Bible that didn't die before they were taken. Or could one of them be Moshe? We won't know for certain until the designated time. And these two will be given what they need to accomplish God's purpose for them as described for others who served God in the Padashah and the Haftarah. And of this provision, we can be sure if we're serving God. These two witnesses are given the power to destroy, hold back rain, turn the waters into flood, blood, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want to. But to whom much is given, much is required. After 1260 days of calling people to repentance, as evidenced by their sackcloth garments, the anti-Messiah will kill them. Their bodies will lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, while those who reject their prophecies and God laugh, rejoice, and exchange gifts as they celebrate their deaths. But there's more to come. After the three and a half days, God calls them to heaven. Once this witness for God is gone, there is a great earthquake killing 7,000 and causing others to give glory to the God in heaven. But that does not mean they're going to be saved. Giving glory to God in heaven does not mean they are going to be true believers. Many people give glory to God in a time of fear. Nevertheless, this is the end of the second woe. The worst is yet to come for those who will not repent. However, the best is yet to come for the true believer. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.